Hi, folks, and welcome back to the Social Life of Energy, the newsletter and podcast for people who want to become smarter about fast and fair sustainable energy transitions. Speaking of smart, we'll be talking about smart cities today and how well they do in terms of fast and fair sustainable energy transitions. You see, there is quite a bit of a do about smart sustainable cities. The idea of smart cities wasn't originally tied to sustainability, but because the whole idea of smart is to do things better, that is, to do them more efficiently, the idea that being smart could actually mean being sustainable was quickly tacked onto the whole project. After all, being efficient means doing the same with less, right? Well, let's see. These lovely musical interludes, by the way, are brought to you courtesy of Siska Bukolo of the clan, Big Bukolo. If you like the ukulele just as much as the next guy, check out this YouTube channel for his takes on the folky classics, broadcasting from the restored landscapes of Iberian permaculture to your home. Check the liner notes for a link. So I probably don't have to tell you that cities are kind of a big deal when it comes to carbon emissions. In 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change calculated that 75% of all carbon emissions from energy use are the city's fault. Those emissions come from the construction sector, buildings, especially those older ones with poor insulation, transport, waste, and, well, all those billions of residents consuming, obviously. Smart technology offers to help here by identifying redundancies and bottlenecks in those same urban systems, like transportation, energy use, service delivery, or waste, helping us to attain that coveted prize of efficiency. But what does smart technology think it is to presume it can offer these things? Smart tech basically consists of two elements, sensors, little instruments that can measure what's going on in some place, and software, programs that can act on the information being sent back from those sensors, and which can ideally also learn from the feedback after acting on that information. This is what we broadly call AI. This kind of combo has proven quite efficacious. Famously, Google used its DeepMind AI to reduce the cooling bill for its data centers by 40% by making it more adaptable to environmental conditions. However, a city is not a data center, much as some technologists would like you to believe. So does this combo work? answer kind of comes down to the fact that smart cities were never conceived of for sustainability, but for performance, economic performance. Sustainability came later. This still has consequences in terms of how smart cities are quote-unquote done. That is, how they are put into practice, how cities are putting into place smart policies and programs. For example, for an article from 2017, Hannele Ahvienniemi and her colleagues from the VTT Technical Research Center in Finland reviewed a number of smart city assessment frameworks that cities can use to see whether they are on track to meet smart city standards. They discovered that there were very few sustainability indicators in these frameworks. The explanation lies in this legacy of where smart city initiatives first came from. The people who are working to make the city smart are not the same people who are working to make the city sustainable. 
A different example comes from Chris Martin from Durham University and his colleagues. In 2018, they reviewed smart city initiatives on how they balance economic growth with environmental and social sustainability, the latter being a gloss for equality. You see, the thing with economic growth is that without policy intervention, it is bad both for climate stability and equality. Growth is bad for the climate because, simply put, it means more emissions. And we also know that the richer tend to get richer, absolutely and comparatively, if there is not some process for redistribution. Okay, so what are these smart cities doing to address this tension between smart growth and sustainability? Well, not so much. In the most cases, the tension is not even openly recognized, let alone mitigated in some way. Martin and others thus conclude that the idea that digital innovation can drive gains in operational efficiency and simultaneously benefit economic development, environmental protection, and social equity supported by surprisingly little evidence and is actually undermined by a number of smart sustainability tensions. Martin is British. So in terms of a fast sustainable energy transition, it doesn't look like smart city initiatives can help us out much. But smart cities are actually more than efficient technology. An equally important definition of smart is the ability to learn. Often, therefore, smart city initiatives also include experimental aspects. Every new piece of technology or every new policy instrument under review is studied in the wild. Call these experiments pilots or preferably living labs. Perhaps it's an inheritance from the Silicon Valley approach. Create a minimally viable product, ship it to a small number of users, get feedback, improve the product, Send it back out, get more feedback, etc. Except that in smart cities, the learning is often outsourced to designated knowledge institutions, which is probably good because they know how to do learning, that is research, but it does divorce the learning process, which tends to be slow, from the development process. But now I'm starting to ramble back to the topic at hand. <music> Crucially, the experimental approach of smart city initiatives creates opportunities for ordinary folks, the uh, users, to get involved in the formulation of policy and the creation of new technology. One would say, for fair sustainability transitions, that would be a boon, no? Well, let's see. already saw that few smart city projects carry provisions to deal with the possibility that economic growth would be unevenly distributed. That doesn't bode well. To Robert Hollins, who wrote a widely read insided critical piece in 2015 about the smart city imagination, this wouldn't have come as a surprise. He saw the specter of corporate enterprise haunting all things smart and wondered if there could be any space for uh, public space that is, a space for substantive involvement by citizens. Smart cities appear to him to be just the next step in a decades-long, quote, corporate influence on urban planning, unquote. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
let's look at what empirical research about actually existing smart cities shows. Actually existing smart cities like Sydney and Newcastle. Not the smart city ideal as imagined by corporations like IBM, but cities with people of flesh and blood and buildings of brick and mortar. The city and Newcastle metropolitan area won a bid for a major Commonwealth-funded project called Smart Grid, Smart City. It included stakeholders from all levels of government, business, and research sectors. The goal was to prove a viable business case for smart grids in Australia. So far, so predictable, if you read Hollins's article. But did Hollins's fear come true that the corporate spirit would determine what smart cities are? Well, according to Harry Bulkley, also from Durham, and her colleagues, who tracked the project for an article in 2016, Actually, no. Instead, what they show is that even a project like this, with its powerful coalition of actors, remains a quote-unquote fragile endeavor. They recount how the antennae of the dumb smart meters just wouldn't penetrate the thick layers of concrete in tenement housing complexes. As a result, the engineers had to devise new, costly, and time-consuming workarounds. The authors also point to the socially organized resistance of the built environment, also known as regulations, such as the treacherously detailed conditions that wind turbines need to fulfill before they can be placed. Significantly, these kinds of frictions have second-order effects in the social and political relations of the project. Residents who get tired of all this trouble and leave the project, endless rounds of development application reviews, etc. Now, Bulkley's article isn't about participation in smart city initiatives per se. I'm including it here, though, to show one thing. Our existing built environment and the social fabric that is woven through it resist our revolutionary plans, even big corporates' revolutionary plans. A takeover is therefore not likely in the cards. This lesson holds when we look at participation in smart cities. So, on the one hand, we have this grand smart city mission statement, and on the other hand, we have been duly warned by the critical scholarship about the dire consequences of such mission statements. But what actually holds up from either, once the smart rubber meets the road? Enter the anthropological mantra. It is more nuanced than that. Let's turn to an investigation from 2018 into the fragility of human enterprise by Robert Coley from the University of Exeter and his colleagues. They examined the policy documents from smart city programs in six UK cities. The authors start by noting that all the documents abound with references to citizenship and enhancing public participation. So unless you are very jaded, you'll have to accept that it's not just about a corporate takeover. That being said, the second thing they notice is that it's often not the municipal councils themselves, but other bodies, such as strategy boards or economic development boards, that initiate the smart city pilot projects. This will prove a critical little detail. But first, let's be clear about what we mean by citizens' participation. 
Coley and his colleagues came up with four different ways or modalities through which citizens can be involved in smart city initiatives. The first is the service user. Citizens as users of urban infrastructural services like water or transportation. The second is the entrepreneurial modality. Citizens are expected here to create new services and economic value, ideally for a public benefit. The third is political. Citizens can participate in decision-making and deliberation in new and traditional channels. And the final modality is civic, which allows citizens to enjoy public space or reclaim digital technology for public benefit. So how do our UK cities deal with each modality? The service user modality is perhaps unsurprisingly slightly overrepresented. Still, it's a fairly even distribution between service user, entrepreneurial, and civic. What stands out is the near total absence of political participation. And that is precisely the kind of participation that could guarantee greater equitability, including the equitability in other modes of participation, because it could enable more marginal groups to make governmental blind spots visible. Coley and his co-authors do a nice job of explaining the variation among the different cities. Whether cities emphasize the citizen as service user or address the entrepreneur in us depends a lot on local economic strengths and local histories and cultures of governance, but also on what funding was available and which institutions got to wield those funds. That last point is important. The authors hypothesize that political participation is this underrepresented because municipal councils are often not those who conceive of and execute the smart city program. So let's draw some conclusions and distill some lessons. Just as smart city advocates painted pretty but vague rosy pictures of the smart city's benefits to mankind, Critical scholars have been similarly speculative about the smart city's dark undertow. As it turns out, our corporate overlords are human all too human. More significantly, existing democratic institutions and frameworks matter. That being said, we can observe that so far smart city initiatives do not actually tend towards, let alone promote, democratic participation. And so we should stop pretending that they do. Ensuring that they do requires real work. The same goes for sustainable cities in general, by the way. Ahven Yemi noted that the most well-known sustainable neighborhood rating schemes assign very low weight to direct economic and social measures. The authors think it's because it's more difficult to measure. Again, democratic participation requires real work. That work is important. You see, the dominant modality of participation in the citizen-centric smart city was infrastructural services. This modality is also the one with the most enduring consequences. Projects that target other modalities like civic or political forms of participation, meanwhile, are also the most transient forms of participation. So the most influential projects involve citizens the least and vice versa. In this light, the following lesson seems especially significant. It matters for what kind of participation you get, who you put in charge of smart city initiatives, the traditional representative institutions, or some innovation board. 
Similarly, while there are various smart formats for political participation in the Smart City Catalog, for the time being, given the disproportionate attention to and staying power of urban services, we should beef up our existing digitally dumb, but otherwise pretty nifty democratic interfaces to accompany the rapid rollout of all sorts of digitally connected infrastructures and big data governance tools. That'd be pretty smart. For now, stay safe.